0: Okay, folks, well, if you listened to the last episode, you'll know that you might have needed a box of tissues for that. Well, for sure, you're going to need a box of tissues for this. So I'm warning you in advance before we get started because my guest on tonight's show is uh, an incredible human being by the name of Annika Lucas. I'm not even going to give you this story. I'm not going to give you what I know about it. I'm going to let her tell it to you. So that you can see what she went through and how she recovered. And it's the recovery that I think is the important bit to listen to tonight. So let's get stuck in. Well, thank you, first of all, so much over in the United States for coming to talk to me tonight, Annika. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure. Um, I I produce podcast episodes where I want to hear about real stories that happen to real people that can give people some form of inspiration in some way, no matter how how hard their life either has been or is. I've watched your content and was consumed by it. And I just know that everybody else, when they hear this story, is going to be as well. Can we just probably go straight to the very beginning and you tell this and I ask you questions along the way because there's just so much I want to ask, but I know that you're from the content I've seen of you, um, you're pretty good at starting it off. So tell me about what happened to you. Tell me about life as a young, a young kid living in Brussels.
1: Yes, uh, well, I grew up in the Flanders and at um, the age of five, six, my mother began to traffic me into a murderous pedophile network, which was run by the political and the business elite of Belgium. So, um, children were uh, brought into this network uh, through pimps, usually, I uh, initially there was a pimp for me as well, and then my mother took over from that pimp, and, um, So we were used mostly for sex and then um, we were, I was one of the what's called expendables. I didn't know that term of course, but I knew that my life was worth absolutely nothing. And um, I was exposed to the worst kind of things imaginable. And um, at age nine, I was trafficked outside of the country and taken to uh, different places to Switzerland, uh, France, and then to the United States. And one particular very well-known, very powerful man um, took a liking to me and then had me trained in Germany in what in the United States would be called MK Ultra, but it's that kind of program that was put into in Germany for a month, uh, torture-based, to make me into a sh- child sex slave, spy, killer. That was to be my journey. And um, I was then again exposed to various training methods afterwards, tests and so forth. Um, deployed with another politician, a um, German politician that I went was brought to almost every weekend that year. And eventually when I saw the my main perpetrator, I call it because it was so impactful, uh, when I saw him again and I realized that I had been trained to be a slave and that the, the feeling that I'd had with this person, this may sound a little bit strange, but w- when he took a liking to me, he um, shared his world with me and said I belonged. And I thought, you know, for me, that was the closest I had to a father. So even though there was, of course, the sexual abuse, I still was very attached, emotionally very attached to this person. And his talk about belonging really had me fired up. And I thought that there was a chance for me. And so when I found out that I'd been trained as a slave, to be a slave, I got angry and was then very uh, vilely rejected, but not killed, and returned to Belgium, operated in that network in Belgium for another year before I was finally rescued, dramatically rescued by someone from the inside, another perpetrator who got me out.
0: Okay. They say that kids don't have great memories before the age of seven, when they become adults, kids don't remember so much. There's the learning to ride a bike and little bits and pieces like that. Can you remember anything about your life before this happened?
1: Yes, I do. I remember lots of things because trauma has such a deep imprint that through various, um, well, when, I see it this way when a trauma needs healing, that's to say, when you are ready for that personal evolution journey that transforms you, then somehow the trauma will surface. So, whether that's through memories, it can be body memories at first, it can affect you, you know, it could just be an emotional repetition, something will come to the surface that needs, that requires. Um, attention and then the journey begins of you know trying to find out what that is and you know as you go through it you become more uh, attuned let's say to what is real what you know I never assume that anything is real when it just comes to me flashbacks and I don't really just assume that these are real but once the emotions this the emotions that were formally suppressed Are connected to the event then the integration happens and then I transform and I don't think it would be possible to change as a human being and to grow and expand you know have my consciousness expand if the um the original event weren't true
0: so your mum, you tell, tell me about what, what your parents did for a living. Did you live just with mum and dad or just mum? Were they divorced? Tell me what happened then.
1: Yeah, so I was born in Brussels and my mother had had a one-night stand with my father. So she was alone with me in the first years. And I had a caretaker who was very loving. So my mother went to work. She was a secretary and at the radio and television station. located in Brussels, the national radio and television station. So, those first three years, I did receive a lot of love, and I was also being abused by my mother. How? 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 Uh, Well, I've remembered things. of My mother uh, uh, assaulting me during diaper changes in anger. And then... But felt like laying in dirty diapers for way too long.
0: And did this this caregiver that, that looked after you, you 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 explained that you felt a sense of love from her? Did you feel a sense of love from your mum?
1: No, never. Never.
0: And did you feel did you feel that your mother hated you or didn't like you or Anything like- no,
1: no, I went with her story, which was, see, my mother um, was said that she she was a good mother. And we all had to, you know, go with that story. And I had to go with that story, too. It was just that I felt really horrible when I was with her. So there was no room for anything that was me. So I was uh, a projection of you know the things that she didn't want didn't like about herself which was either weak and bland feeling and just pleasing and groveling or it was i was evil wow. so she saw those things in me but never i could, I was never free to to be myself
0: and so your mom was working at the radio station and she was a secretary and how did she get exposed to these types of people how did How did her interaction come with them?
1: She was married um when I was three to my stepfather and my stepfather also worked there He was a cameraman so they were pretty well to do and you know she she had she he was twenty years older than her, so they moved into his house in uh, the village where he was also the mayor in flanders and in that village, I'm not sure how it happened exactly, but I believe that my mother was targeted or that I was targeted through my mother, that the the people who were um, interested in bringing children to this network could see that my mother was not well. And there was a cleaning lady that came to work with, for us um, I never liked her. She was extremely calculating. I you know, just didn't like this person. She didn't like me either. So she and her husband became the first pimps. And uh, there, there were people from the nobility in the village who were involved in the network. And that became the contact person. When my mother took over, then that woman um, became the contact person for my mother.
0: And so, The, the lady, the, the cleaning lady then, hold on, I've got to understand this bit about your stepfather then. So what role did your stepfather play in this?
1: Well, my stepfather was my mother's enabler. Uh, because of his work, he would travel quite a bit and he often wouldn't be there, sometimes even for months. So when he was gone, my mother just took me and sometimes my little brother was in the car while she drove me to wherever she was told to bring me. And then when he was home, had a different cue, I had a different cue. So then she would just give me a look and I would not put my pajamas on. I would just go to bed with my clothes. And then, you know, she would come and get me sometime later in the night. And I'd have to be very quiet and she'd let the car roll down a driveway um, without putting the, turning the motor on. She'd turn the motor on at the bottom and then drive off. Now my stepfather was in their bed so it's not as if he wouldn't have noticed but well they were both very good at denying and extreme denial so my mother wouldn't acknowledge even physical marks or anything that i had just that they didn't exist nothing existed she she was a good mother and that was all that was the that was always the first the strongest reality for her that she needed to defend So anything that was wrong with me reflected on her, and so she didn't accept it. Um, My stepfather was similarly very deeply in denial. I had tried to speak to him once. Um, My mother, I was 10 years old. My mother had left me for five days, which was an orgy, but then I was left by myself in this empty villa and again, when she finally brought me home, she acted as if I should have known better, I should have come home or something, you know, complete denial. And then I, my, my stepfather was home and I thought he would know because I was emaciated. I had not had anything to eat. My hair was very knotty. Um, I had not been able to clean myself. So. I was sure that I would be able to speak to him. And I'd had this hope also when I was little for these years, like there was this thing, like my stepfather, if he knows he's gonna help me. And so I, I, I tried to speak to him and he, he was very disappointing. My mother apparently had already told him that I'd ran away and had spent some time with very rich people. That's what she'd said. And so he joked. He didn't notice first of all my condition which was extremely disappointing then I tried to tell him and first he joked and then when I finally said no there were no rich people there was nobody there and when I tried to speak to him he didn't believe me.
0: How did that make you feel?
1: Well my hopes were crushed. <laughs> my hopes were crushed very much. My heart was broken so many times when I was a little girl. Um, and my stepfather, strangely, had less expectations from from you know the 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 main perpetrator. Maybe I had more expectations from him, and I, and I felt more love from him too. My my mother and my stepfather. I never felt any love, and even though I loved them. And I hope they, would, they were what they pretended to be. They, you know, I just really never experienced any love from them. But the first perpetrator, the main perpetrator, I should say, that was devastating. That was much more heartbreaking. And it in fact, affected me a lot more deeply than my stepfather, as well as um, the perpetrator who finally got me out. So that was one who ended up coming through in
0: a way. You were being sexually abused from the age of six.
1: Yeah.
0: And you were forced to have sex with grown men at that young age. When or how, no, when? When did you first realized that what was happening was, was bad?
1: Right from the start.
0: You knew right from the start?
1: Yes. I strongly believe that the love that I'd received from the woman in my first years gave me a sense of right and wrong. I had a sense of myself. I had been, I'd received the reflection of myself as a, an innocent, sweet little baby and I could be myself, that's to say, at that time, a tiny human being in her presence, she accepted that, she nurtured it. So I felt seen and I had always had a sense of right and wrong. So the very first time I was taken to the network, I in fact stood up and told everyone there, which was an orgy, that I was gonna make sure they all go to jail. They can't do this.
0: Did you go to school every day?
1: Well, I did go to school. I was absent quite a bit, but I did go to school. Yes.
0: And did anyone at school ever hear hear you talk about it or nothing at all? I didn't
1: speak about it. I would be much too ashamed to speak about anything like that. I went with the denial of my my mother. I wanted to believe that my mother was a good mother that she was and I needed to believe that to live. And I would never have dared to speak to anyone um because I was told that I was a prostitute. Not even that nice a word. So that's what I believed I was. So all the shame, and, and that's the purpose, you know, I I was carrying all this shame. And I think that's the purpose of the abuse is to, 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 uh, to, to unload the shame that the perpetrators can't hold themselves. So they um, get into that cycle. But I was feeling so... No, I, I didn't want to. I wanted my mother's reality to be, to be the reality, except it wasn't working very well either. But there were, I remember, you know, a teacher laughing at me because I was so spaced out, completely not present. And so her asking a question in the classroom that I completely didn't hear because I was completely gone. And then her making fun of that and everyone laughing um i remember in the fifth form i had a very bad report card i'd been absent quite a bit but that was when i was tortured that was 11 years old i i didn't just get released i was tortured before i was released and i'd been home for three weeks and i had a very bad report card and i was crying and the teacher yelled at me for having it you know said she was disappointed in me and then i was so disappointed in the teacher no one noticed anything and this is um late 60s early 70s in provincial belgium flanders i don't know but i felt people were so dense i never saw anyone there were there was one family that was kind
0: really now while you while you're experiencing this did you meet other children and get to know other children that were experiencing the same things as you at the time and
1: yes um, um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And wh- tell me about I that.:
1: didn't Meet them. I didn't know them very well, but you know, the closest I got was with the little boy, and I felt extremely protective of him, uh, because he was a little bit special. He was younger. He was two years younger than me, and he was a little bit special. So I felt extremely protective of him. And um, unfortunately, I lost him in the worst way. And he was killed. And I, I, he was literally ripped out of my arms. So I tried to hold on to him. So um, after that, I, I never allowed myself to be close to anyone. So I kept my distance. I didn't want to be friends. I was afraid that I was going to lose them.
0: How old were you when you lost him? Nine. So he was seven. The perpetrators were... All ages or just old?
1: Mostly very old. Well, to me, they looked ancient. They were probably my age now, which is in the 50s, you know. Mm. The 50s, 60s, 70s, they were old. So most of them were, the, you know, the businessmen of that era with balding heads and punch and um, very gross. You,
0: you kind of hear about this kind of stuff happening in even in the UK in government and stuff like that and i think for for most of us we can't it's so unimaginable that we can't get our head around it and it's almost like because it's so unimaginable the thought the thought of it being real is just it's just not it's it's too far-fetched it's too extreme it's just it's just too much and we know there's bad things that happen in the world but that's just too much obviously you have done a lot of research over the years and you've been exposed to an awful lot. It's obviously through your experience, far wider spread than, than any of us can imagine.
1: Well, I work with survivors. So I'd say yes, the trainings are happening a lot. Children, a lot of children are being trained, um, to be slaves and then even if the, the children from families that are involved are trained as well and so they just get specific tasks and um, and because dissociation is part of the training, the, the calling out altars is part of the training, those people would not know what they're doing when they're being um, called or when they when they're, when, they're, when they're, there's a code, that brings up a certain altar. Now, I wasn't trained specifically like that. Um, I wasn't, it was a little different for me. I wasn't trained in that way in which we hear about MK Ultra. Um, But as far as in the high realms of power, what happens there, yes. So I was exposed to that in the 70s and my perpetrators were um, the, some of the world leaders of that time. And, you know, the top of the country, prime ministers, presidents.
0: Have, have you ever publicly mentioned anyone's names?
1: No. Uh, no, I, I, a little bit. The Belgian. So the, the Belgian prime minister, he was not prime minister at the time, he was the minister of national defense. Um, his name is Paul van der so, you know, I've, I've named the Belgians and then the Belgians used the, the children and myself included to become friends with some of the, the top people. So I was gifted to someone, to the American, for example, that, that was very powerful. So I, 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 I can't name, I don't feel um, that I can name those people, even, if they're, even though they're dead. Um, it doesn't feel safe. And um, I'm not sure if it's my fear from the way in which I was indoctrinated and uh, told in no uncertain terms that I should never speak or I'd be killed. Um, there's that. But there's also, there is a real danger. If you go out and say these names, and I know others have done it. But I want to just briefly touch on your statement before that, you know, it's too much to believe. And I understand that very much. Um, it was actually something that the people in that network were banking on that what, is, what they're doing is so extreme, no one will ever believe you.
0: Hmm. Really good point. And <laughs> it, is it a combination of that along with feeling that maybe they're above the law anyway?
1: Absolutely, it's all that. It, the arrogance. Um, so, so my sense of these men was that they really did not have any uh, connection to their true self, their, their innocence, their spirit self, their spiritual self. And they really didn't have feelings. You know, they didn't have the capacity to feel. I think their emotional development was probably stunted right at the beginning. So they're psychopaths. But so they were very overcompensated in the the the, the, um, the left brain area so they could you know they 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 could be orators and and rouse the crowds and you know and say all the right things and yet you know absolutely no no one nobody home really so they were also Satanists so they were offering their so they were they Sold their soul to Satan and they were receiving power and money in return. But I want to say, I really understand that it's hard to believe. Is, do especially you know, do you know? When you think that these may be people that we voted for, you know, that these are faces that we know, people that we know who who may we we may feel that we know them because we've seen them on TV or may even
0: come across one once in a while well yeah I think my head at the moment is I have two daughters and so being a father of two daughters that obviously takes you to that place which is horrific to think about and then and then and then also I think of of this uh, Illuminati and the Freemasons and this these types of organizations and um it, it gives me chills it really gives me chills let's tell tell some more of the story so you you were you were going through this from the age of 6 until w- what age did you get say 6 to 11 and how old were you when the mk ultra came into your world
1: so that was at age 9
0: age 9 okay D- just for everyone so that they can understand explain what the mk ultra is
1: yes i don't think mine was called mk ultra but it is a A a system, I think it it comes from uh, Nazi Germany, that uh, trains very young children for certain purposes, always dark, you know, to serve the dark, the deep state, I guess, um, by traumatizing the child to the point where the mind goes completely blank. Because it, it can't take it anymore, so the mind goes blank, and then at that moment there is, say, a, a blank slate, and so that is a new personality, a new altar that is then trained to do certain things, and that is also filed away. Let's say that only come is brought out in certain ways, so that that person growing up wouldn't know that they have like this altar that goes and kills people, for example.
0: Alter ego, yeah. And that training starts from nine years old?
1: No, I was old. Ah. I was older, yes. I had been um, sort of chosen by by, by this perpetrator who put me in it, but most children were younger.
0: You said in one of your videos that you added up the amount of hours that you'd been raped. Well, yeah. Can you just remind me of what that number was again?
1: I don't remember the number, but I calcul- what I calculated was um, six hours per weekend, and 50 weeks take off two weeks for um, times five. Or five and a half. I'm not sure, but uh, it was many hours over a thousand.
0: How? How does someone that's been through what you've been through ever ever learn to trust?
1: That's a good that's a good question. I feel spiritually very connected. So I've learned to, for example, I hated men for for a, a lot of my adult life. So I was either pleasing men or hating or hating them, uh, and, and the pleasing was actually part of hating them, if that makes sense. The placating <laughs> uh, or sexually pleasing, you know, was part of the what I was made to do, and so there was the anger on the other side of that. So I, you know, I have been saved every time again by kind strangers even as a young girl when I was going through this and I had no love at home there would be people I totally didn't know in the street and just be very kind suddenly and I knew to trust that and, I, and it, it meant a lot to me that someone was kind and as an adult it was the same thing it was certain people see there were certain people who really were able to ignite a transformation, because um, there were certain conditions that had to be in place. I had to look up to them as as an authority figure. I had to give them power. They had to not care about being an authority. They had to um, be humble and not really need that power boost that I was giving them. And then I would test them. And when when I figure out that they don't need this authority, they don't need me to placate them, then I'll test them, and so it can be anything, you know. I just do something that. So if they were to judge me, then then I say, okay, I'm bad now. Now now they become like a perpetrator. Judgment being like the first like negative projection onto a person. Yeah, yeah. And if they then did not judge me, if they instead said something about me that was true and that was kind, then I, because of my power relation to them, because they were, I placed them in the role of a parent of, a, of an authority figure. And my experience with authority figures was that they were uh, needed the power, and they were going to blame me at the end of the day. And so when I gave someone power, and they did the opposite, they didn't need the power, and they valued me, then I was, this, first, I would start crying, because I would, believe what they said because I gave them the power to do that and then they said something positive so it immediately healed something inside and then it could also immediately see the ways in which I'd not been valued before and then I would start to grieve
0: Do you you still respond to kindness in similar ways now?
1: Of course (laughs) Doesn't everyone though?
0: Yeah, but I think I think some may take it more for granted than others, some may not see kindness in the eyes of the person being kind maybe. Um so you're going through your teenage years, this ends at 11. How 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 do you transform because you then obviously go through Puberty and you know adolescence and all that kind of stuff, and so your world starts to change as a as a human being developing and evolving. How how do you grow? What kind of person do you uh, are you during those formative kind of teenage years?
1: Well, I think I was a classic um, rather messed up teenager, as you could expect. Um, so I left home very early. At 15, I was just sleeping in other people's homes all the time and just sometimes at home, I wasn't officially gone, but I was barely at home. I left school at 15, um, I moved out as soon as I could at 16. Um, I was even at, in the Red District for a little bit in Antwerp, um, just drawn there by people from the cafe. They went there for a joke and then I got offered <laughs> to you know, have drinks with the men and then I did that, but I didn't sleep with them. And, and that was because I, the, the, the man who, the perpetrator who rescued me, gave me instructions for life and it included never sleep with anyone for money. So never become a prostitute. So I, I didn't sleep with them. So I didn't really, I also been told not to overdo it on drugs. So I wasn't really, I could take drugs if they were given to me, but I could never do anything to get them. So I couldn't really become a, a, a drug addict. So I was saved in that way that I was listening to these instructions, but I was messed up and just floating as a teenager and, but not, not assaulted ever again. So I was quite lucky and um, I left the country 18, 19. Um, and uh, also, as for the instructions uh said i had to you know go to london paris new york and i went and lived in all those places and ended up in new york
0: okay i've missed a bit out i just want to get this bit done before we move on to the next bit i missed a bit out with the guy that saved you i want to just talk about that for a minute the, the, the tell me that tell me how it happened did it was, was it something that came out of the blue could you see it brewing um just just, just set the scene for me
1: Yes, well, this perpetrator was not old. He was only 20, 21, and uh, he was a young gangster. So he had respect in the network because he used his gun. And he um, also took a liking to me. I, I defied him when I first met him. And he liked that. And I think it was my attunement to know what to do or say, just, you know, even even if it seems strange. Um, but he protected me for a while. And once how,
0: how, how, how did he protect you?
1: He wouldn't allow anyone to rape me. Okay. No one could touch me and he wasn't touching me either. So that was for, for six months. Then when the sex started with him, he immediately started to put all of his, um, abuse on me. So it became very, very violent. For the next six months, and that was going to result in my being killed. And um, he had given me over, let's say, and I was about to be tortured to be killed. And I was tortured. And while I was tortured, he negotiated for my life, he had a change of heart. And a deal was struck. He was to go to work for the politician who was in charge of the network, Van and, and he got me out.
0: Where did he, When he got you out, where did he take you?
1: He took me back home with his instructions, how to be at home. He gave me pills, opiates, to deal with my mother, whom he knew would be very angry. So... I used that, those pills and it wasn't easy to be back home for sure. But I ended up staying there and leaving early as he advised me to do. And she wasn't allowed to bring me back to the network or she wasn't going to get paid anymore.
0: When was, after you, after you left, how often did you see your mother?
1: I saw her regularly. So when I went back there, first of all, she took me back to the network one last time for free that I found out then that she was being paid because the men talked about it. And again, I survived and that was the last time then one time after my rescue. But in that time, because of the torture, I had these wounds. And so I had to be home for the wounds and I was not in denial then. And that didn't match her reality. So it was very difficult to be around her. So it, eventually well, she took me back to the network. I survived again. Then she, sex, then she molested me. And when she molested me, I, I gave up. I just, all the shame. <laughs> Tremendous shame! I just let her be in charge again, and went back into following her story. She's the good one. I'm the stupid one. Whatever.
0: Everyone on this planet would forgive you for hating your mother, and nobody, nobody would be able to understand why a mother would do such a thing to their child.
1: Yes, well. Yeah, my mother was not really a mother, you see. There are women who are not capable of being mothers, and my mother was one of them, just not. She was like a five-year-old child, emotionally, and that clearly very abused. Born right before the war, father went to concentration camp in a town right by Germany that suffered hunger. I mean, I don't know what happened to her, but clearly. And she lost her mother when she was five years old.
0: Did you um, ever forgive her?
1: I did. I did. I, You know, when you see someone at their emotional age, it's much easier to forgive them. And mm. she was five years old, emotionally. So when you deal with people and you can see their emotional age, then you don't give them any power. So I had to, I'm not, still not completely healed from what my mother did to me um but she was not a mother she wasn't able she she wasn't capable so i did forgive her i called her to forgive i called to forgive her in fact and she she died uh, less than a year later
0: okay let's talk about healing different people heal in different ways um whatever they've been through, they try and find ways. Sometimes that's hypnosis, uh, psychology, counselors, uh, groups of other people that can share their stories, have been on their journey, can understand where they've come from. Um, I was interested to understand how, I I mean, again, right now, this minute, I don't get how anyone heals from that, but you've got a first-class honors degree and being able to do that, which I have a huge amount of respect and, and uh, admiration for the fact that you are sitting here right now with a, a smile on your face and talking to me uh, as coolly as you are, I just that that for me is a, I can't get my head around that right this minute. How did you start to heal? Where did the journey of healing begin for you? And was it with purpose? Was it by accident? Who did you meet that introduced you to certain ways, therapies, yoga, whatever it may be? Tell me a bit about that, please.
1: Yeah, so initially I should say it's what I described earlier, that these kind people, these vet, you know random kind people, sometimes had a huge effect where I would just, just my heart would, would open. And, so I was seeking, I was seeking. I didn't know what I was seeking. And, you know, my life was very random. It seemed very random. I was really following these instructions, but it didn't have anything about education and work. And so I was just doing menial jobs here and there, whatever I could get. And usually didn't last very long. I wasn't a good employee. I, 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 um, I got fired a lot. And um, I couldn't really do anything. I, I couldn't really focus very well, you know, just massive PTSD. So, and at the same time, because of the, the training, the mind control training, I had an ease about me, which I still do, you know, but this ease and, you know, this, this coming across is, as, because I was trained to service the elite. So you have to be light. So I had that lightness at the same time. So it makes it m- more invisible. And um, I first went to therapy. I, want, I knew I wanted to go to therapy. And I went and started. And that was the beginning of the journey. Not long after I started therapy, I started to get a new perspective on something that I brought in. And that perspective was very painful. It brought out all the pain. So I started this grieving process I remember the first time three weeks of crying three weeks of tears and while I was crying I remember the, cha- feel, the change happening so the 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 the, inter- the neural integration is happening so suddenly every cell is getting new information and I see the world differently and people respond to me differently and I feel this growth and that was tremendous for me that was worth everything, that insight that came from the growth. So that was the driving force behind everything. And I continued therapy. And then of course, everything that was added later on, I always write therapy. And I also had a sense of the spiritual, which I think is also very important in healing. You know, the, 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 the trust, the 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 faith that there's a benign force which i often felt in childhood
0: do you how old were you when you started therapy
1: um i was in my 20s so 26 i believe
0: 26 wow that's a long time and can you remember your first therapist
1: yeah
0: and um uh, It was a big
1: bag, that first therapist. I actually fired him, but he got me to that first place of opening up completely and and the three weeks of of tears that was with that first therapist. But then I felt comfortable with him, maybe familiar also, because he was a a man. And then he said something that was inappropriate. I went to his supervisor and then she told me to fire him and then she took me on.
0: And for how many years did you have therapy for?
1: <laughs> and so starting then that that's going on, uh, you know, so I had 20 solid years of therapy and then yoga, but everything in my life became in the, in that optic of healing. Because once I started, I realized this is so heavy, you know, I can barely hold a job anyway. And now with this attitude <laughs> and um well I had a great privilege also of very easily finding jobs um because a young 20 something you know finds I found job jobs very easily I used my skills to find to, to get the job I guess um and then I was married and again um the instructions by my perpetrator who rescued me or who got me out, were very clear also about the person I should marry. So when I was married, there was no financial issue. So there's no survival, no issue about survival. So I, I could go to therapy.
0: So, I mean, literally you trusting a man, falling in love with a man to marry a man for me thinking about it, and I know you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but me thinking that must've been really tough.
1: Well, I didn't really succeed in that. But you I never, did. I never really fell in love. I've not never really, you know, my entire adult life, that really, that area. Um, I have lots of friends, you know, and I'm very happy. Um, and I don't desire a relationship and I say, if this is something that I need to have for the healing, I'll take it, (laughs) but I don't seek it. And I don't know if it's needed. I've never really had that relationship with a good man and being patient and because the sex just is such a trigger that it has to go, either he's a perpetrator or there's no sex. And then we can be friends. So. I haven't been able to to
0: tease that apart. Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. Now, you don't hear about this all the time, this kind of stuff that you're talking about. We don't hear about all the time, like we spoke about earlier, but you work with other victims and you've worked with other victims for some time now. How did you get into working with other victims? Number one. And number two, what did you learn?
1: Yes, I think it's natural. I I came out. So there was a case in Belgium, the Dutroux case, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it was a big deal in 1996, when Marc Dutroux was caught. So this was the case that was out the network in Belgium. But it didn't. But there was a lot of talk about it then. And, and it was in all the papers worldwide and they mentioned the pedophile network um, but then eight years later when that case went to trial only Marc Dutroux really was sentenced and anything relating to the network was cut off from that case and I knew then that I couldn't come forward that I wasn't ready I saw how the, 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 the woman who who had been ready to testify in that case, her testimony wasn't used in the case, but she, she was ready to testify. Um, She had very detailed memories. And so some really good cops had really tied her testimony to a lot of the the uh, unresolved child murders. And everything was cut off. So that became public. And it was a huge controversy in the country. Now, the Dutroux case, nothing happened, but now this victim was there. I knew I wasn't ready. I felt ready only in 2013. Then I started to first come out, first speak publicly about this. It just was natural. I was being interviewed about my work in prisons and they asked me a question that led to my revealing it. And it was just very natural once I, decided, once I was ready and then in 2016 one of my videos went viral and i was approached by a lot of survivors so i was working in the prisons before where you know obviously with people with a lot of trauma that i was able to relate but now i started to relate to people like myself i never believed there was anybody else before you know i never believed there could be anyone else or if there if anyone was even alive i had no idea so just now being able to speak to survivors who've been through the same thing was just really incredible. So it was the greatest joy. And so I started a group, uh, you know, I have a chat group online for survivors of SRA, which stands for satanic ritual abuse, but it's really satanic ritual abuse and mind control. And, um, what is really incredible is how the experiences that we've been through, which we thought were so outlandish, so insane, no one could, we've all been through it. Or many of us, there's never anything, there's nothing that I went through that somebody from the group didn't also go through.
0: That that must, in a kind of unusual way, that must have given you some comfort of knowing that there were other people because you couldn't you no one can ever imagine what you I mean as as well as you tell it no one can even come close to imagining it in real in real terms
1: it's very dark and extremely heavy nothing is as heavy as that as living through something like that it's so heavy so in the beginning so working with them so I'd already had these 30 years of healing so now when I'm working with survivors, they often have that experience of being heard and understood for the first time because I know exactly where they are. I know exactly what they've been through. And so there's that instant connection and also my healing experience that I'm just sharing so that this person can also, um, you know, basically break through the shame that was put on us.
0: Is, is this type of behavior more prominent in certain parts of the world than others, or is it the world over?
1: I think it is in the Western, in in our Western uh, culture. So I've never spoken to, and and I know that, you know, there's uh, um, horrible things happen everywhere, you know, that's just the world we live in. But for this particular kind of abuse, it's always, always seems to be white men white men um, uh, from the Western world and women, some women, but it's really the men. It's really men.
0: And white men in powerful positions?
1: Extremely. But there's the men who are in the powerful positions that we see. And then there's, there's those behind them who control them who apparently are from certain families and so forth and I don't really know anything about that I don't want to you know spread any beliefs or anything I just know what I know from experience
0: If you could meet these people that did this to you again what would you say to them?
1: I would hope that they res- that they can absorb the love that is there for them that they can heal their heart because I'm not saying that I love them. What I'm saying is that this is a disease of the heart. And these men have no heart, literally. Like they have no feeling, no ability to feel. And I, it took a very long time for me to understand that that is a curse. It's an absolute curse to not know who you are and to not have any connection to your greater self and spirit it's an absolute curse I and mean, you're tied to the physical world like it's sl- and they're slaves absolute slaves you know it, it's it took a lot of healing to be in the fullness the richness of life and experience it with feeling to understand that I'm not missing anything from not having their riches not having their power because they're that's
0: all they have what what should we look out for when you said that nobody knew your mum put you through this nobody knew but could, could could any of us ever have told could we have ever could there been signals could there been signs you know if if, if i ever saw it what what, what, what would i look for
1: Yes. Well, for example, I was taken to New York and I was put in a, in a hotel room for an hour or so I was taken by a handler. So we walked into the busy lobby of a hotel near the airport. I had no luggage. I was wearing clothes that i have been wearing for days. I probably wasn't very clean. This man, I didn't know this man. I was scared. Nobody noticed anything. But just and then I was put in a room, and the man left. So nobody came to check on me. I, I think no luggage is one sign. Um, you know, I was sensual. I think it's something that you can see in children when they're being sensualized. Now a lot of children are being sensualized, especially if they're in ads and so forth. But that is could be a sign that they're actually being sexually abused. And it, it often goes together. You know, a lot of models start very early, but they're being sexually abused as well. It's, it's, it's so much part of that culture. Um, but it's something to look for as well. A child that looks really sad. A child that, that looks scared. A child that has bruises. There's lots of things that... I wouldn't say that anyone would have been able to help me because the network in the network, they made sure that that I was always going to feel that no matter who I was going to tell, or no matter what anybody was going to do, it was always going to get back to them because they have the most power.
0: You were never going to admit it, were you? And for anybody that is going through something like this at the moment, from your last statement, you say you would say that most people won't do anything. But anyone that's going through something like this right now, what, what, what would you tell them to do? What would you say to them?
1: Yes, I think there are more resources today. This was um, in, in the 70s. There, there was no awareness. There is more awareness today. So It is tricky. Because if you're being abused on that level, it is, the, it is very hard, and it is so dangerous. But there are, um, there are organizations for, for child sex trafficking and so forth, and it's very difficult. It's very difficult. But these children are, I mean, we survive so much. You see, we survived so much to begin with. So there's strength there. And if that strength can be employed to heal ourselves for our health and for, um, you know, to do, to, 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 to look for what we want to do rather than what we have to do. That is whew, tremendous. So.
0: You're, um, if you don't mind me saying you're one hell of a lady,
1: <laughs>
0: you. you, you, you really are that as, um, I just, I just feel like I want to give you a hug, okay? I just, just have this urge to give you a hug. And here, Alicia, my producer, is sitting here in the background listening to your story, and um, we're both really moved and humbled that you decided to come and share that with us tonight. You're um, You're about to publish a book. Tell me what the book's about and why you decided to write a book.
1: Yeah, so the book is called Seeds Beneath the Snow, Uncovering the Divine Feminine on the Path to Global Equality. So it is um, the hope. Um, I think that we on Earth are due for a big do-over in terms of the way we go about things, and I think the feminine, the divine feminine is uh, essential. Um, The compassion, basically, the true compassion, so that we don't have another revolution and kill everybody that came before us and become like them. It is all about power, but not needing power. Anybody who is extremely powerful, we should be wary of. It means that they must have a very damaged ego. Anybody who has more than a billion dollars, like, what's wrong with that person? Why do you need so much? You could, I mean, and I know that these people cannot end world hunger truly because of the the cartel that runs the world that I was a, a victim of. But the female energy has been discarded and suppressed and the patriarchy has become very dark now and that's what we're living and that's what i'm living it's secret still it's beginning to be uncovered but the patriarchy is toxic as it is so to return to more maternal and um to reach egalitarian to, to not egalitarian and just ega, e, equal in opportunity not of course we cannot say that everyone's born equal that's just not true but to have equal opportunities for everyone and i developed a healing modality based on looking at power dynamics in this specific way that we can all use and, and, and employ on ourselves to um free ourselves from our own participation in the toxic power structure so that we can free ourselves. And then by that changing our own vibration, we can, we won't need that structure around us anymore.
0: And how long has it taken you to write this book?
1: (laughs) So the biggest problem is that I haven't given myself the time to write it because I, been so busy with the work in the prisons and then um working with people and i love it but now i'm giving myself the time to write it
0: and it's due to be published and out for us to all buy when
1: december january december of this year or january
0: okay and when it comes out will you come back and do a live with us and tell us about the book when it's ready to go will you come online with us live
1: be happy to do this.
0: okay that'd be awesome stuff that'd be good well there we go Annika Lucas I I don't know what to say I really am internally grateful for you for sharing part of your story this evening and I as I just said you're awesome you really are awesome and it's just been an absolute honor and an absolute pleasure to get the chance to sit and talk to you so thank you so much for coming on the show
1: oh thank you so much you're so kind have a wonderful evening
0: yeah you take care and uh we'll see you soon Okay. Bye.
1: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: When you're trafficked at the age of six years old by your own mother to a paedophile ring as a sex slave, I thought previously on previous podcasts I'd, I'd heard the worst. I've never heard anything like that before. And I thank Annika so much, genuinely so much, for being so kind as to share that story. It's truly, truly heartbreaking. The reason I do this kind of stuff is that I want you to know that there's people out there that might be going through stuff that you're not going through, going through tougher times than you're going through, and that when people like this have hope, you can have hope too.